Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest in my home is a BYU student, Evie Jimenez. Welcome to the podcast, Evie. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I met Evie because I did a guest lecture in a psychology class at BYU and Professor Wood's class, and um, this led us doing a podcast together. And Evie is going to talk about her journey with an eating disorder. We've done a few podcasts on this topic, but it's been a long time. And it's an area I don't know a lot about, but it's an area where I recognize that really faithful Latter-day Saints are working through eating disorders. So um, I'm really grateful for Evie's courage to reach out and do this podcast. It's really brave to talk about an eating disorder um, on a public platform like this. But I think Evie is doing this to help others. Um, that have an eating disorder and maybe help you if you've got people in your circle. Um, if you're a parent or a local leader or a friend of someone with an eating disorder, um, things hopefully will come to your mind to help you help them. Um, is that okay for an introduction? Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> Tell our listeners what you're studying at BYU. Um, I'm a psychology major at BYU and um, I recently added a minor in nutrition. And tell our listeners where you grew up and where you served your mission. I'm from Chandler, Arizona originally, and I served a mission in Idaho, Pocatello. I was originally called to um, Brazil Porto Alegre Sul and got to learn Spanish, or pardon me, Portuguese in the MTC. And then later, um, the majority of my mission was in English, but I did get to use Portuguese and Spanish as well in Idaho. And were you, was that because of COVID or visa issues you didn't make it to Brazil? It was mostly COVID. Yeah. <laughs> I left in, in the heat of it. So, you know, one of this is a side note, listeners, but I've wondered with all of the COVID missionaries that had to deal with changes, unexpected changes, I've wondered if somebody will do a dissertation and compare this age group with an age group that didn't have as many changes and just see if your adaptive, adaptive you know what word I'm trying to say, skills are better over time. Because you've had to deal with a lot of changes to be called to Brazil and all the excitement of that. Yeah. And then to spend your mission in Idaho, just like a lot of people have, is different. It was, I wouldn't have changed it for anything though. <laughs> but that's what a lot say. And I love Elder Bednar's talk about you're called to serve um, and then you're assigned to a certain area. Right. Um, so it, I'll just, and tell our listeners um, what you're hoping to do with your career. Um, the main goal is to one day be a counselor specific to adolescent eating disorders. And I wanted to pull in some um, therapies and certifications for therapies on the side, including dance therapy, equine, which is horseback riding therapy, um, and then art therapy. If possible, I'd love to do some work in third world countries as um, a specialist in malnutrition as well. Do you think you'd be um, looking at this as a career if, you'd, if it wasn't for your own journey with an eating disorder? No, not, nope. I, I can't think of, yeah, sorry. That's not very, well, not very articulate of me, but yes, I, I can say that the Lord has guided me to this career in a lot of ways. And I like that. Not everybody then pursues a career in the areas they're kind of working through personally, but sometimes if you can take your lived experience in a space and add um, clinical and education work, you become very effective. Um, at what you do. Now, that isn't everybody's story. Um, I've been to a therapist twice. I've been open in that in the podcast and in my book, but I never felt impressed to ever go down the road of becoming a therapist or getting any academic training. So 
Yeah. Um, but I love what you want to do. So um, I think what we're going to do, listeners, just to give you a little bit of an outline is we're going to talk about the early years, um, Ivy growing up, and then we're going to talk about this segment that I really want to make, that I want to make sure we talk about is the bread on the sacrament tray and just feelings of the eating disorder and taking the sacrament bread and wondering how many calories were a part of that. And yeah. you're very brave to talk about that and talk about church culture and recommendations for those that are struggling. So that's kind of an overview of the podcast um, for you. So now we'll get into it. So anything else, you, you maybe talk more about this introduction um, yeah, when you were first diagnosed, if you want to just talk about um, some of the growing up years. Um, so I guess just to go right into it, um, I'll let you know a little bit more about myself. I guess I love to run. Um, I'm an Irish step dancer. I like horseback riding, singing, writing, learning new things, trying new recipes. I'll mention that probably later as well. That That's ironic for someone with an eating disorder to like to cook um, and then doing family history. Um, I was first diagnosed with an eating disorder at age 11, which in all of the research that I've done is incredibly unusual to have it be so young. Um, I, I've done a lot of research in this area in order to prepare for the career. And um, it's, it startles me <laughs> looking back to say that it was um, something so, so early and that my parents were quick enough to catch some of those warning signs. Um, it was not necessarily a, a clinical diagnosis. I wasn't hospitalized for it, thank goodness, but um, there was a lot of counseling and working through patterns at home and in school that were really painful. And there was a lot of difficulty balancing needs and in order to stay out of that inpatient treatment. A couple times over the years, I've wondered if I should have done inpatient treatment. The coulda, shoulda, wouldas haven't <laughs> helped me any, but I've, I have a tremendous amount of respect for people that are brave enough to go into that, um, the hospitalization and get that additional help. For me, I feel like the counseling has been a really good route to go, but I realize a lot of people with eating disorders have a different journey on that. Um, I honestly couldn't say if there was one reason that I um, developed or, you know, grew an eating disorder. Um, a lot of people talk about like their cause or some sort of trauma, but there's also just pressures that kind of add up together. And I feel like some of those for me were a desire to, um, to really like myself. And, you know, those preteen years are really difficult and everyone's bodies are starting to change and you're wondering, oh no, like I'm going to hit this, this puberty phase and not be in as much control of my body. And I want to, to look a certain way. And the world tells you, especially young women that they need to look a certain way. And I think when you get kind of lost in that mentality, um, food doesn't become something you enjoy anymore. It becomes um, almost like a drudgery. Like I, I started to dread meals and um, simple cues, like sometimes if a parent is watching their weight or trying to take care of themselves, um, I just emulated things that I saw or diet culture that I understood or thought I understood. And it kind of spiraled out of control until, um, until I hit a, an unhealthy um, weight and needed to, to get some more help than I was able to um, get from my family. 
Thanks for being so honest. Do you feel like um, you were diagnosed, and I think it sounds like you give credit to your parents, to you. Do you think as many 11-year-olds exist that are undiagnosed? Um, do you think, and I, I guess the question is sort of like, yeah, that's the question. That's a good question. I've definitely thought about it. Um, in my growing up years, I felt like I could identify it more easily or those cues in other people. Um, as I've studied more, I've realized that there's a difference between disordered eating habits and an eating disorder. Um, and so I would say there's definitely a lot of um, children as young as eight to 10 that have disordered eating habits, but if it continues longer or starts to impact your health, then that's the eating disorder. So there's, I would guess that there are quite a few that might be a, in a position to begin, but it, it is more common later in, in late teens and early 20s. Is there anything else you want to talk about as far as an introduction? Um, I wanted to mention that um, there are a lot of, I mentioned external pressures before. There's um, usually an eating disorder doesn't come by itself. It comes with some other sort of identity crisis or anxiety, depression, hyperperfectionism, scrupulosity. Um, it just all kind of ties itself together. And I um, haven't officially been diagnosed with other things, but I've noticed that those anxious cues tie really closely to um, the eating disorder. And when one aspect of a person's mental health is affected, then usually the eating disorder is the manifestation of not knowing what to do with those mental cues or imbalances in your life. That's helpful. Anything else on in an introduction you'd like to share? Um, and I would mention one other thing, if that's okay. Uh, I felt like I realized that an eating disorder and having one of can be really painful. Um, and it's, it's not a sin to have an, an eating disorder or to struggle with, with what you look like or not liking the person that you see when you look in the mirror. Um, that can be a really difficult thing in the church to, to know in your mind that you're a child of God, but struggle to, to compute it. I think that's the most difficult thing for me is that when you try to compute some of the I say compute as like it registers and sometimes it just wouldn't register. I would, I knew, I knew in my mind that I was a, a daughter of God, but until it really set in, it was hard to, to let it go. Um, sometimes, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> That's really honest. And I, I reckon I, I don't know where that comes from sometimes. Cause I think intellectually you knew that, but it was hard to feel that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that comes from a culture. Um, Inside the church, outside the church, we don't feel good about ourselves. We don't feel we measure up. We don't feel we're enough. And so there's this kind of conflict, even though our brain knows this. We, it's hard to connect that dot through our whole body to right, actually believe that about ourselves. Yeah. So that's a good thought. Talk about um, the early years. Um, that's kind of listeners, our second set segment of the podcast, where we then talk about the sacrament as the third segment. But you know, do you want to talk about why this has lasted so long or started so early? Um, I couldn't tell you quite how it started so early. Um, I wondered that myself many times. Uh, I've always been a pretty active person. I liked um, running as a kid and my mom would invite me to go running with her early in the morning. And I've danced since I was a little girl. So 
I know both, both of those acad- or pardon me, athletic endeavors are very, um, they do have a diet culture associated with them and kind of some pressures of looking a certain way to be a runner or to be a dancer. But um, I think some of it can just come down to communication in, in your family. Our family had to grow a lot in how we communicated and things that um, my parents, before I received treatment, things that my parents said were a trigger of sorts for me to, to want to do exactly the opposite of what they said to do. For like most people will just be like, just eat. That's, they see the problem as, as just not eating enough. And um, if, when my parents would say that, then it, it was, you know, there's that teenage angst that kind of comes into play as well as all of the, um, the brain gut interaction saying, no, I, I, that's not what I want right now. I want to be validated. And, um, not knowing how to express that as an 11 or 12 year old, not very articulate. Um, I think that there were just some communication errors and as we learned as a family, what things were appropriate to talk about, how to talk more kindly about our, our bodies. Um, I'm really grateful for what my parents, the adjustments that they made and that they started to, to talk more kindly about themselves too in, in the whole process. Um, it's a good segment. Um, I think I would do that as a parent, and that's part of this podcast is trying to help us all do better. And I think of the iceberg concept I talk a lot about is that what's above the iceberg in this case is you're not eating whatever right vocabulary is. You're not eating the right way or the healthiest way. And so my reaction would be just eat. But I recognize that what is the bottom of the iceberg, you and therapists and family members need to kind of get to the bottom of the iceberg and connect the dots and say just eat may not be helpful. And I like you recognize that wasn't helpful. Um, so more yes. thoughts on that, or do you want to talk more about, you know, other activities? Um, um, I'll kind of tie both of those together if that's okay. Um, I didn't have this in my original plan, but I feel like I should share maybe a little bit more what my day would look like, um, Good. as a 12 to 13 year old after I'd been diagnosed and started going to counseling. Um, my counselor, she's one of my closest friends now, um, would talk about this stinking thinking or these patterns that you have to recognize in yourself, whether it's related to food or not. But to give you an idea of what that food mentality and that calculation looks like mentally, um, in just a morning, I guess maybe this could be triggering material for anyone who does have an eating disorder, but it might ring a, hit a familiar chord too. Um, I'd wake up pretty early and go for a run or dance or something with, um, usually it was cross country practice early mornings for junior high. Um, I'd pack my lunch and kind of secretly try and stow some of the extra food away. And then my dad would come and repack it and add stuff. And I felt this need to, to have everything very measured. And for me, it was calorie counting other people. It's counting the fat grams and food or how much fiber they're getting or laxatives, et cetera. Um, in my case, it was more based toward anorexia nervosa, which is um, focused on caloric deficit and um, hyper-exercise, lack of eating. Um, anyways, I, I would go to school and just find myself so exhausted in every class and you figure, oh, it's just I stayed up late doing homework or um, your body's begging you to eat something, but the thought of eating something 
makes it feel kind of repulsive. Um, and then of course you add on the <laughs> junior high drama of, oh, this, this guy likes me. I have to look a certain way or this person in my friend group takes medication that causes her to gain weight because she's regulating a different problem that she's dealing with. I don't want to, you know, you don't want to add in all those extra troubles. And so I kind of would just suppress it for a long time. Um, but coming down to the the basis of it, everything was a calculation. I um, was going to about 1,200 calories per day was my, my plan. Um, I'm grateful that my dad interfered with that plan. He w- would get me this, um, this shake supplement and he took off the label so I wouldn't know how much was in it. And so I made a, a guesstimate of what I thought a normal shake would, would value and I would budget that in. Um, and I didn't find out until about a year later that the shake was about 700 calories, which is a lot more than is ever recommended. But I'm grateful because I feel like it, um, it probably kept me alive. And in those moments when I was sitting there going, I, you look at yourself in the mirror, I can see the extra um, like chocolate on your chin or on your waist or the like wanting to have muscle toning but not knowing how to be healthy versus thin and I didn't even know what I wanted I just knew that I wanted to feel beautiful and it wasn't working and so I would just try and compensate weigh myself a ridiculous amount of times per day (laughs) probably 10 to 12 times a day if I was really worried about it and having to change that mindset and go to counseling and have people like they took away the scale. I wasn't allowed to weigh myself. I wasn't allowed to look at the calorie amounts um, and really just think about what it meant to eat and took a long time to even realize that I liked to eat, but my body was thanking me as I, as I let that back into my life. Sorry, that was probably a little long, but (laughs) no, that was good. Keep doing those kind of segments, the spur of the moment, stuff like that. Those are gold. Um, That was really helpful for me. Someone who's not very familiar with this topic, just understand sort of what's going on in your mind and your heart. Yeah. And I wrote down the word, feel beautiful. Everybody wants to feel beautiful. Right. And um, that's a great thing to want. And, but you were pretty honest. I didn't quite know how to do that. And, you're getting all these different messages about what beautiful is. Yeah. Um, and you're probably getting a lot of reinforcement for, you know, being whatever vocabulary I'm going to use here, lean, skinny, mm-hmm. um, and culturally or indirect message you're seeing. So that's making you feel beautiful, but you're not happy and, and you're battling this. And so that's a really tough spot to be in as a young girl. That's true. I felt like... It was difficult to, to like what I saw. And there's always those um, little cartoons you can find on the internet of a really skinny girl looking in the mirror and it looks like warped, like you're in a fun house. And that's kind of true. But more than that, it was um, for a lot of people, I guess, you look at a certain part of your body and dislike that the most and go to the measures you go to just to make that one part of your body look look good or what you think will look good. Um, I felt like I didn't really get to see a really good picture of myself and what I looked like to my Heavenly Father until I was going to the temple or um, when I got to serve my mission. I That was the biggest difference I noticed as soon as I was set apart that I felt more beautiful than I'd felt my whole life. 
um, it's kind of an embarrassing thing to say that um, I've had this disorder for more than half of my life now. It, and I don't want it to be something that um, defines me, but I also do in other ways because I, I realize that that can help people. Um, so I know that there's this, this desire to disassociate yourself with the disorder, but there's also maybe a need to um, keep the association with what it has left behind with you, the things that you've learned. Um, that's kind of where I was thinking. I like that. I like um, that there's, this is part of your life and I, like the hope in that segment where this can this can be part of your life, but not in a defining way, but in a way that you can help others. Yeah. And not that you'll be battling this your whole life. And you've obviously made progress to be where you are, but you, this gives purpose in this whole journey to help others. Yeah. That's not everybody's story, but that's a, that get, I like things that bring hope into people's lives. So I love the hope that gives you. Thank you. Talk Me about. Too. Connect more of the dots for our listeners on why the temple and being set apart. Just more thoughts on why you felt beautiful. I don't think you used that language, but just what are, you said something really good about how you felt in those two situations. I, I would love to. That's honestly been still kind of a safeguard for myself when I start to go back into those kind of mental patterns because they are neural pathways that you need to get yourself out of using. Um, but spiritually too, to say, um, that's where I felt like I finally internalized that I was a daughter of God. Um, throughout those years that I was the most, um, physically in, in danger, like with that health struggle, I, I just noticed that when I kept going to the temple and I wrote in a journal every night and I just write down one thing that that I had seen God's hand in my life. I think that kept me from spiraling. Um, a lot of the time I, I used to hate looking in the mirror um, because there were mirrors in my parents' bedroom where I would weigh myself a zillion times a day. And so I was constantly looking and analyzing. And I had a, a really wonderful leader in church actually tell me the closer you look, the more in, insecurities and problems you're going to find. So when you need a minute, I want you to step back because you're not going to get anywhere staring further and further into the mirror. You just kind of drown in yourself. And that's where those um, unhealthy thoughts come. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, and anyone who's ever, you know, picked a zit <laughs> knows that well, the, the closer you look, the more you find, or the more wrinkles you find, or the more whatever, it, it's kind of gross. But the more you look at yourself, the more flaws you find, unless you have that eternal perspective and can say, um, I look like I was made by deity and um, to go forward with what you were saying about the being a missionary. I had someone that I met in the MTC um, online virtually. <laughs> she was recommended to teach me some Portuguese and practice with me. And um, to that point, I'd been feeling really good. I um, was excited to serve and felt like you know, when I lost myself in that service, I was happier and less focused on my own problems. But um, she just hit a chord when we were practicing and then she kind of went off to the side and just started bearing her testimony. I was like, this is, this is time to practice Portuguese. But she, I'm so grateful she spoke up because um, 
He told me, do you know how many generations of time God has prepared for you to be here in this particular genetic makeup right now? I was like, I've, I've never thought of that. And she went on to say, God didn't just make you. He made you and he did a good job. He knew what he was doing. And those things that you see as imperfections are going to help crown you with joy and glory someday. And since I was a missionary in COVID, um, I received my temple endowment. I received those blessings um, from members of the church later, in, uh, right before I flew out to the field. So after I'd met her and had that experience, I remember looking into the mirror after we'd finished the endowment ceremony. And in the best way, I didn't recognize myself. I recognized someone who was very loved, who was divinely created and I could I could see more of Christ in myself than I could see of myself and for someone with an eating disorder that is everything you could want because you can look at yourself and hate yourself all day and you can hate your body but you can't um I don't want to, that to sound bad to that hate is such a strong word but you can't hate Christ and when you look in the mirror and you see yourself with Christ and you can feel his light inside of you there's it's really difficult to dislike um and I'm grateful to say that every time I can go to to the temple and just have a couple minutes by myself looking in the mirror hopefully not looking vain or anything but to have that moment with myself and to say okay I like who I am here and if that's as much as I'm going to get this week then that's okay Another great segment. I loved, I wrote down this phrase, Evie, eternalized daughter of God. It's sort of like you conceptually knew this. It was sort of theoretical. Yeah. Um, but then through the temple and your mission and your setting apart, some of those spiritual experiences, it became real. Yeah. And you could feel that and it just internalized. It became wired in you. And it yeah. may come and go a little bit as, this, as you get triggered a little bit, but I love that you have this now grounding. And I think there's a, I think, you know, I think, and you'll probably get in this, there's therapy that's needed to help this, but I like the way um, spiritual tools can come into your life to help this. And so Absolutely. internalizing you're a daughter of God and you're worth this set is a good thing. And a therapist may not be able to do that. Right. <laughs> Likewise, um, somebody who's really good at that department, like a local leader, may not have the therapy skills. So I think this is a good example of where there's a kind of a co-journey and maybe other parts of the journey coming together to provide healing. Yeah. Um, there's this, talk, look through that section on early years. Okay. Um, Evie, like many of my guests, has brought an outline which I invite my guests to do so they could share everything that they want to share. Don't leave the podcast forgetting something that they'd really like to share. So just look through that and see if there's things in there you want to share with listeners. Um, I'll add one more thing that came to mind that wasn't on the outline, and then I'll do that last section at the bottom before the next one. I think that should be okay. good. Um, I was thinking about how it just takes a village to get through something like this, like you were mentioning. Um, my parents were huge supports. I looked forward to times right after counseling. My mom and I would kind of debrief in the That's car. That's cool. And we weren't very close. There was a lot of um, a lot of headbutting at the beginning because, you know, she's fighting for my life and I'm not. <laughs> and that's hard. 
um, at least at the beginning and having time to talk through the skills that we learned and realize some of the things that I was thinking wrong and realizing that that she cared about me. And that's why she was taking me to a counselor that I really didn't want to see much at the beginning um, was powerful. And then having that church support was tremendous. I can say with certainty that I would not be alive if I did not have the gospel to teach me who I am, what I'm worth, and to reinforce what my family and my friends were trying to help me understand too. Um, to add to that last little bit of the outline that I brought, I also wanted to um, mention that I know eating disorders, like I said before, are not have like it's not a sin to have one, but I I felt like for myself it was wrong when I would consciously choose to indulge in those habits that I knew were wrong. And it can be really difficult to, um, to tell myself, no, I, I need to eat that, or I need to not, um, want to go exercise by myself in my room after this, because I just ate a piece of chocolate cake, or, um, I don't need to have a, a nervous breakdown because of feeling pressured to do something that's going to be good for me. Um, and those little moments when I, when I knew I wasn't supposed to be weighing myself and I did it anyway, or I knew I was supposed to eat something, but I might've hidden it or thrown it away. I felt like those were choices that didn't bring me closer to the savior. And so I would feel some guilt. Um, it's a different kind of guilt than I would say is maybe your typical sin that you talk about in, in repenting in the gospel. But I do think repentance covers that, that those little moments when your brain and your body aren't really in agreement um the lord can help reconcile that too i like that i like you i think it's a good segment you shared with your parents where your parents were trying to keep you alive you've mentioned it a couple times and it sounds like that gives us insights and in where you were and we know people with eating disorders i can't always pronounce this right anorexia mm -hmm. it can be a life-threatening disorder if that's the yeah. right language mm -hmm. and it sounds like that's what you have had had yeah. parts of that i don't want to no it's give you I, a label if you don't want to take a label i I'm, am not offended by that in the least it's yeah there's a couple different types of eating disorders and that's the one that i have felt applies the most sometimes people go through phases of what kind applies to them the most but that for me has been the most consistent label too and i love this um, I love that you're thoughtful enough now at 21, this is roughly nine years later to recognize <laughs> your parents are trying to keep you alive and got you to therapy and some of the things you need to do. And I think that's good for parents to hear that sometimes they have to be pretty bold <laughs> and do things that in the short term negatively affect a relationship or can affect negatively Absolutely. affect a relationship. Cause it seems like, um, and every story is a little different, listeners. This isn't like permission for parents to do just carte blanche, whatever <laughs> they want to do. I think they need to be prayerful um, and be guided by the Spirit on how to best help their kids in tough spots. But I like now where perhaps your relationship with your mother is even deeper than it ever would have been because you've learned how to talk about real stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> and these, and sometimes people go through really hard things and it's painful, but the the depth of the relationship going forward is just beautiful. It's one of the byproducts in a positive way of this yeah. journey that is really scary and very difficult. I don't know if that's true or you want that's, any thoughts on that. That's so true. Yeah. I, as you were saying that, I felt 
I just was reminded of some really awesome experiences. Um, my dad and I also had some good talks. I feel like it kind of came in waves. There were some days I was not willing to talk about things and other times that um, they just asked really good questions because they were trying to understand it too. Um, and I thought I understood it, but really what I understood were the behaviors. Um, I didn't understand the why quite so much, but um, helping them know how to help me was really big. Um, I feel like for any parents that might be listening, for me, it meant a lot to just have time with them in the car to talk. There was no one else around. It was just me and my mom or me and my dad chatting. And it didn't have to be about even the thing at hand. They, they would ask me, um, my dad's signature question is, so what's on your mind? And that was open enough that I could tell him it, it might go towards some of the stressors in my life. It might be um, about a sport that I was worried about at the time. It might have been, it helped me to address things that I didn't realize were affecting the eating disorder, but they absolutely were. Um, and that allowed us to maybe get to the root of things without even trying to or having that professional training. It just allowed us to talk. And like you said, it gave me a, a really good basis to be able to talk to my parents about um, real things later in life and, and ask them questions that were genuine and um I didn't realize for a long, long time that this was even a problem. It, it sounds maybe kind of petty to say that, but I, I was like, no, they're, they're just worried. They're overprotective. I'm fine. I'm trying to be healthy. What parent doesn't want their kids to eat a ton of vegetables and fruit? Um, but if it's out of moderation, it, it took a long time to realize that I actually had a problem. Um, and so getting them or them getting me to talk about things that, were stressors to me in a very long roundabout way helped me to realize, oh, I, maybe I do have a problem. That's, it took me a long time to realize it wasn't normal. Um, but once I realized it wasn't normal, by that point, we'd already built that relationship up from, from the crumbling situation it was in before. And I'm really grateful that, that they did that. I love your dad's question. It's you can't answer your dad's question with a yes or no. Right. <laughs> I think good questions that way. Um, are like, what's on your mind? And I think that every parent's relationship with a kid is, is different. So some kids, you know, I used to kind of think I would just do Sunday. We used to call them PPIs with our kids where mm -hmm. every Sunday at three o'clock, once a month, I'd cart my kids and close the door and we'd talk about stuff. But some of that was okay, but I think as I aged up as a parent, I was more spontaneous and sort of respond and tried to understand along with my wife, the uniqueness of it, each kid. So it sounds yeah. like being in the car um, at times was, and just finding the way they would open up. Sometimes it'd be in nature. Sometimes yeah. it would be, sometimes it would be in that PPI at three o'clock, whatever we used to call it. Yeah. And that's sort of more formalized, but I like just the principle of you want to develop open, honest communication and be flexible enough as a parent to know that's going to come different. And it's sometimes it's going to come easier to one spouse or the other. And that can be a little difficult for the one spouse, the kids opening up to if the other spouse, if the other, you know, so yeah. I think we just have to, as a parent say, the goal is to keep our, help our kids. And some parents, one parent may connect better with a kid, or you may be in a one parent home where there's not two parents to connect with a kid. That's really anyway, true. Anyway, it's a little tangent. Talk about anything else before you want to talk about the bread on the sacrament tray. Um, can I say one more thing before yes. we transfer to that? Um, 
I also hadn't planned to share this either, but for those who might be going through some of those early, really rough um, situations at home right now, um, I, I, I do want to acknowledge that it's not always, you know, this happy conversation in the car after a counseling appointment. It was usually, um, there was some yelling, there was a lot of resistance, a lot of tears on my side, a lot of tears on my parents' side. Um, I know it caused my mom a lot of sleepless nights. And um, I know that for those with an eating disorder, a lot of the time you feel like you're under the microscope. You're trying to go under the radar, trying really hard. But because people are concerned about you, everyone is on top of you. You have extended family and relatives and cousins and friends who are asking why you don't want to eat or what your rules are about eating. Are you a vegetarian now? Like I got all the questions and I didn't really want to talk about it. And it was really awkward. Um, I think a lot of that awkwardness gets forgotten, but for those who, who are feeling that I, I just want you to feel seen or heard because that really is a hard place to be. And as parents or relatives, it can be really hard to know how to help them. And a lot of the time expressing that concern is what you you go to, and then it can be really uncomfortable. But um, I want to thank people who who are expressing that love, and also um, tell those who are also struggling that it it makes sense to me <laughs> that that it might be uncomfortable. I like that um, this wasn't just an easy journey, and it's probably not totally complete. And I I've thought. Uh, something that's surprising me you said but probably helps me realize how difficult this is is you didn't really believe that this was an issue right (laughs) um you probably thought everybody was overreacting you didn't need a therapist you were fine Mm -hmm. parents were being whatever and yeah eventually you came to the conclusion this isn't normal i think is your words and i need help and that's a tough situation for people around you that love you to be in and and so it's just a complicated area and i think you know I, I just invite parents to act on the impressions they feel to help somebody. Are you okay asking this, answering this question? Did you do any inpatient? I did not do any inpatient treatment. Um, my parents did your parent comes close to sort of like, you know, you're a minor. Your parents could like send you off somewhere inpatient. And if they were worried enough about you, that would at least keep you alive. Right. There was a lot of talk about that. And at one point <laughs> that was um, the threat. <laughs> if you can't, try and work on this at home we we've we've done all that we can you know we're gonna need to send you to the place that can get you more help at the time that was more um distressing for me because I was in a really rigorous school and trying to keep up with homework was you know four to six hours a day of homework and I was worried about how much I would miss if I even missed a day or two and you know inpatient treatment is so long um so it wasn't, we never went through with it, but it was something that got brought up a couple times. And I think that in a roundabout way, it was what showed me how severe it was that my parents, as much as they loved me, would be willing to send me somewhere else to, to get help that they couldn't offer. And at that point I was like, oh, okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe they're not just overreacting. Maybe I maybe I do look skinny. Like that was such a novel concept for me to look in the mirror and see skinny or unhealthy. But um, yeah, 
I hope that kind of answers your question. That's good. I'm glad we asked that question. Um, Talk about the sacrament tray. All right. And you can Uh, talk about this picture you brought. Our listeners can't see at any time during this segment. Um, I'll get into the picture in just a second, but um, I guess I'll just start toward the beginning again on this one with every week in, in church, we have the opportunity to partake of the sacrament and think about Jesus Christ. And um, that's always been something that's important to me, but in the peak of an eating disorder, um, the reality of my situation was that um, your stomach starts to feel so heavy all the time, even if it's empty um, with an eating disorder uh, for some people, at least that's how it was for me. And it almost felt like if I added just that tiny little piece of bread, it was like the crowning piece on the top of this mountain of food that my stomach felt was there, um, whether I'd eaten breakfast or not. And there was a lot of, a lot of guilt and a lot of just dissonant feelings that I had. Um, and it was a battle for a couple weeks, um, at, like intense battles for like in a couple weeks, but for over the course of years, I had to really learn what the sacrament was. Why, why am I taking this? Am I taking it because people expect me to? Am I taking it, um, you know, to, to please my parents because they're worried about me eating? How am I going to feel when it, you know, when it hits my tongue? There was this, this instant battle because your brain is literally singing hallelujah. <laughs> we can taste the food. There's, it tastes delicious. And then you're almost fighting to not acknowledge that it tastes so good. I, there's certain foods that were blacklisted for me. I didn't want to eat carbs. I didn't want to eat sugars, anything with, you know, high dairy content. And I was like, well, this is the sacrament. I need to take it even if it's spread. And so I would, I would take it, but then instead of focusing on the savior, the rest of the sacrament would be focused on battling. Oh, I just ate that. Oh my goodness. How many calories was in that small piece? Because, you know, all the pieces are torn individually. And so you don't know how many calories are, you can't count a calorie like you can in a cracker. And, um, in the most beautiful way, I've realized that that's exactly the point. The pieces are ripped individually, um, because the atonement is individual. I had to study, um, the atonement a lot to really start to recognize how much preparation went into the savior suffering for me. Um, and it felt like it took forever. I was, I I'll be honest. I, it took a long, long time to feel like I was excited to, to have the sacrament. And then even beyond that, I, I was, I just felt so ashamed that my whole battle during the sacrament was to not think about the eating disorder or to, either that or to shove it under the carpet and pretend like it didn't exist. And, you know, Heavenly Father sitting there going, um, yeah, that, we need to talk about that problem. And um, as time passed and as I studied the atonement with um, some resources that my mom gave me, whether they were scriptures or um, books from like Desert Book about the sacrament and the atonement of Jesus Christ. Sorry, I need to always associate it with Christ. The atonement of Jesus Christ. Um, I felt a little more whole. Um, as for the art piece that I brought with me, I wanted to 
<laughs> show it to Brother Osler, but it's this um, artwork that I did last term in school. And it's just a piece of bread. It's a still life. Um, and it took a lot of work, just put a lot of hours into it. And I kind of paralleled that to how much preparation it took for the Savior to um, to do what he did for each of us. And as I was working on it, my my aunt commented to me, you know, one of Christ's name is, names is the bread of life. And I was like, oh, that is, why did that never occur to me in such a, a profound way that Christ had literally given me my life back? Um, you know, he had conquered death, but he had also conquered this mental disorder that we really don't know much about still today. Um, my, one of my favorite parallels between the sacrament bread um, and myself is that when the sacrament bread prayer is offered, it says that he gave his body. And um, when I think about this body that I have that for so many years I haven't taken as good of care of as I needed to or haven't respected and loved as the divine gift that it is, who am I to, to say, wow, um, you know, the Savior gave his body, but I think we, we, we overthink how much he spiritually gave and we forget that he gave us the opportunity to be exalted and resurrected. Um, that yes, our bodies right now are imperfect, but they're beautiful and they're made by him. And it's a very needed and fulfilling part of the atonement to remember that he didn't just bleed for us, but he offered his whole, his whole soul. Um, and I think that for me encompasses the whole um, of my recovery is realizing again and again that I was worth it, that my body was worth it. It wasn't just my spirit that he fought for. He fought for my body to be able to enjoy exaltation too. And so if I'm going to live with myself forever, I need to start figuring out how to have a better relationship um, and address those needs. Um, I'm going to look at my outline really quick and make sure I didn't miss anything. Ah, gotcha. I feel like there was a lady on my mission who would prepare the sacrament bread every week. And we would share this analogy with people that to make bread, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a baking nut, as I mentioned at the beginning. Um, I, I love to cook. And for a while, it was just because I, I could kind of pawn off the food on other people, but still enjoy the smell of the food. And now I, of course, enjoy eating it too. <laughs> but there's, there was so much joy in that preparation of bread. I love to make bread now because you have to knead it. You have to work it really hard. And then you have to bake it at high temperatures. You have to let it rise. And um, there, there's hours that go into a loaf of really simple bread. And to think about how much work Jesus Christ went to to prepare himself and to prepare us um, is amazing. He, he pre-mortally prepared for this role. He learned and grew while he was here. He took care of his body. Um, of course he took care of his spirit. I'm just focusing on his body for the sake of the podcast. But, um, if he took so much time to prepare, then the crux of all of this is that I needed to prepare more honestly for the sacrament every week. If I didn't take time to prepare, I was just sitting down and 
you know, fighting an eating disorder once a week for 15 minutes. And instead I could be pondering a lot more deeply. Um, I had another thought to go with that. I don't remember what it was though. (laughs) Um, Well, I hope that thought comes to your mind. That was a really brave segment, Evie. And um, the pieces are ripped individually and the atonement is individual. I love the visual imagery of that. Um, This is a beautiful loaf of sourdough bread that you've, I think it's sourdough. Yeah. And um, you have a gift of art. Is is there therapy in art? Does it help you in your recovery to draw? It does. I wish I had done more with it, to be honest. But I, every time I've taken art classes or if I'm really stressed out, I, I have my watercolors or my pencils at home, then I can pull that out and just... Um, it pulls me back to that theme of creation that, that God creates and he does a good job. And if, if we do have that divinity, then, then we should be able to create too. It's a very peaceful place, but it also doesn't force you to think too much. You just kind of enjoy the textures and the, the feel and you can more, you can appreciate the overall appearance of things, which kind of gets at the, the root of an eating disorder. I love, I love how you're talking about the body and how, you know, our heavenly parents have given us this body and our Savior wants our bodies through his death and resurrection to exist again. And that salvation that comes to all of us and the potential for exaltation. So I love how your understanding of our doctrine kind of at the 30,000 foot levels, levels helps you in another pe- sort of part of your road to recovery. You've got kind of these multiple things you're using on your road to recovery therapy, your parents, but you're also using um, the atonement of Christ. It's one of the more, you know, I just, I think sometimes we need Jesus and a therapist. is isn't meant to like say we don't need therapists, but there is pain that comes into our lives or difficult things that's not sin related. Mm-hmm. And I think the atonement can help heal us. It, I, I don't want to say don't go to a therapist because I think your journey is obviously a combination of both plus other things. But um, I just invite our listeners to be open to the atonement can heal you just like it's healed you in a way that in its heart, it's not this lockstep formula like the repentance part of the atonement where we go through these six steps and we know we're clean. It's a little more complicated yeah, and it's a little more individualistic, but I love the way you read books and you've studied it and you've, pondered it and and the atonement is healing you absolutely is um that i remember the one last thing i was going to share and it tied in perfectly with what you said so you were inspired um i feel like learning to internalize the atonement was a really difficult thing and it it still is It, it feels like a very abstract and hard thing to put your finger on as a member of the church of Jesus Christ to say, I I understand it, but I don't know how to bring it into my life. And, um, as I was learning how to, to let the sacrament enrich my experience with Jesus Christ, it became, it came during, um, a visit with that same sister who would prepare the sacrament bread on my mission. And I realized in this just big epiphany moment that we need to be preparing um, 
daily, just a little bit, thinking about those goals that we've set for Sunday so that we're not sitting there on Sunday going, hmm, okay, what do I want to, you know, do better this week and then not remember the goal. But then also pray um, for that experience to be better. And then when I um, go to church on Sundays, then I reflect on how those goals each day, um, sometimes they're the same goal throughout the week or throughout many weeks, um, how those are doing. And I pray for direction on, on one little thing that I can improve. Um, and it's not a concrete science. I just like that I'm thinking about it more, that there's, um, that's just ethereal peace that comes when you take a little bit of time to think about it. It's kind of a lot of the word thinking, sorry. You're thinking about thinking about what you're going to be thinking about, but it's, it, it ties your thoughts together in a more cohesive way and involves the savior, um, in every part of your day. And it's, it's hard not to rely on him when, when he becomes such a big part of your thought process. Anything more on the sacrament you'd like to share? I think that's all that I had. It's a really good segment. Talk about Thank church you. culture. Um, church culture is <laughs> such a loaded part. Um, I think that there's some stigma still against mental health and, and eating disorders and not stigma as much as misunderstanding. Um, I think a lot of people want to help. It's just hard to know how to help. Um, and it can be difficult for people to say what they need because a lot of time you want to ask, okay, what, what can I do to help you? And the honest answer is I have no idea what you can do to help me. Um, again and again, that's been my answer. And I feel bad telling people, I don't, I don't know how to let you help me. I'm just grateful that you asked. And so taking kind of that, that church culture and this ties in a lot with things that my family learned while we were figuring out how to communicate better is just um, being okay with trying to separate the disorder from the person because it can be really painful to, to only be seen as an anorexic or to only be seen as someone who's depressed or only seen, you know, at all of the different disorders that could, a schizophrenic or a, someone with bipolar disorder, just there's all these different labels and to be able to separate them from that label and come back to they're a child of God first and foremost. And even if I don't know how to help them, I can show them that I love them. It, it sounds cheesy, but that's, that's what I've come back to time and time again, as I have reflected on this. It's good. I love your advice where you don't you tell people, thanks for asking, but I don't know how to, you know, I like that. That's something we can all do is ask people how they're doing. And just sit with them in the complexities of their situation and without knowing, either of us knowing how to help them, but in a way that helps a little bit just to know you're present. Yeah. And you care. I was grateful. And I like you separating yeah. the disorder from the person. Mm -hmm. That's a really thoughtful thing too. It's, it's a hard thing for me to wrap my mind around that, that, that mental health is not eternal, but I'm so grateful that... Um, or mental health disorders, I should say. Mental health is an eternal thing, I'm sure. But um, that's not doctrine. That's just how I understand it. Sorry. Might need to cut that part. <laughs> oh, I, I, that was good. That was um, fine. But that mental health disorders aren't what's going to forever be. And so it's so important that we separate that. Um, you know, sister so-and-so at church is, is so much more than the one experience she shared. She 
she strengthened others with the experience, but also not just labeling her or labeling a brother who shared something that was difficult for him. Um, we can admire their strength. And I think that's what, where I'm getting to is the focal point of this is just admiring people's um, spiritual gifts that they can pull from these experiences. Um, being able to say, wow, they are, they are brave or they're kind or they understand how to help a group of people that I would never know how to help. Um, and I think it's been very eye-opening for me to realize that, um, yes, my experiences are unique, but everyone else's are different from my own too. So I can learn from, from what they're experiencing vicariously. And then we can all be able to develop those spiritual gifts by hearing about them and, and realizing what a strength other people are showing with those. I don't know if that makes too much sense, but. <laughs> Talk about recovery. Um, this just helps other people and me. Are, are you ever fully recovered or are you recovered? What are the expectations for somebody with an eating disorder? Is it manageable? Are you in full recovery and recovery? Talk a little bit about that. That's a really good question. And I've asked I mean, myself that a lot. Some things are just over. Like, I mean, if I have uh, that are very acute, you know, like appendicitis that comes right. and it's over. And it's this chapter of your life that's forever over usually. So talk about what this is. I am grateful for that question because it's, it's a hard one to answer sometimes. There's in the medical world, then yeah, like you said, appendicitis can be cured one and done. There's relapses that occur with mental health, or if you just have a bad day or a lot of triggers all at once, then um, it can be hard not to jump back into that um, identif identifier or that label that says, oh, this is the eating disorder, or this, all of a sudden, that's me. Um, I, I realized that earlier on, um, some of my loved ones wanted me to be able to say, like, I'm done. I, I recovered and I think they were surprised that it's something that kind of drags on and that's really painful. Um, I can say at the very least that I'm in remission, if not recovered. Um, I just feel like recovered is such a, a complete thing. And to be honest, there's some things that aren't going to go away until that, that special day when, when the Lord makes our bodies perfect. But um, having that process to, and having the tools, the mental tools and social tools to approach it has made it so it's, it doesn't feel like a problem as much anymore. Um, so I guess I don't have a good term to describe it. I can just say that I don't feel like I'm in danger um, from my own mind or my own body anymore. And um, for people who are recovering, it's okay if it takes a long time because there is that relapse and you, you do wonder, am I done? Am I, and then something sends you right back and you're like, Oh, I guess I'm not done. But, um, I don't know if that quite answered your question. <laughs> it, it's a good answer. And I like in recovery and remission. I think it's okay to, to, I like what you said. This may not completely go away until my body's perfected. Yeah. And maybe that's a more practical, everybody's story is going to be different. Some may want the hope that this will completely end for them. Mm -hmm. And others want the pragmatic sort of perspective that you give that this may be just part of my life journey. 
Yeah. And it's not a bad thing. It's just the reality. And I've learned and I'm in recovery. I'm not, um, I think you use words, I'm safe. Mm-hmm. And I'd like, you know, some of my guests have talked about the spiral staircase that if you get triggered and you have a day or two of setback, it's not like you're back at the spiral, beginning of the spiral staircase, wherever that is at age 12 or 11. Yeah. Or in your, you're way beyond that. And you have all these tools and insights and gifts. So it's part of recovery sometimes to get triggered to have a bad day or two. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes we want to be hard on ourselves and say, all oh, that work is now I'm back to square one. Don't do that, listeners. Um, you look at, and so I think you're self-aware enough now um, to understand what's going on around you, your triggers and your behavior. And I think that's a good place to be. And I would want to give you hope that you'll continue to recover. And mm-hmm. that if we got on the podcast, you're 21 right now at 31, you'd say, well, the, let me tell you about the last 10 years. And <laughs> yeah. you would have a big smile on your face like you do right now. Now, here's a tender question. You're gonna, you're single and someday you're going to be married. Um, although I don't want to say that's for sure your path because I don't want to. One of the things my wife and I tried to do in our singles wards is help the YSAs feel like they were whole now and didn't, and didn't have to be whole once they were married. They could be whole and complete single and yeah we still want them to get married but we didn't want them to feel like they were not whole now so i don't want to sort of go down that road with you like for sure you're gonna get oh, married no, that's fine. <laughs> but your husband's gonna know about this right yes i thought about this and tell me very often <laughs> yeah i know and so i don't know if you want to talk i guess the question that came to my mind how do you hope he responds the one that you ultimately marry because not everybody's gonna respond the, the right way or the you shouldn't say the right way the the way you would hope they respond. But and this is helpful for maybe just people listening. Um, how do you hope he responds? That's a great question. Um, oh, it's hard to know which emotion to cater to first. <laughs> I, I hope that he doesn't see me as just the label as once I tell him that, hey, I've struggled with an eating disorder and this could still be something that's difficult for me throughout our relationship or our marriage. Um, I'm worried, genuinely worried about how that will affect my parenting. And that's something I've been studying a lot recently is how to um, teach children good nutritional habits. Um, Because I'd like to think that I'm doing what I can to um, learn about my own health and how to not have it influence other people in harmful ways. But um, in a maybe a strange way, I also hope he will express a little bit of concern to show to not just be like, "Oh, that's fine, you know, this that's great, I still love you," but to also say, "That's that's pretty serious. Thank you for sharing that with me. How can I help you?" Like maybe taking it seriously, but also expressing love. I don't want to dictate someone's response because you know that's not where I'm at in life right now, but. Um, just maybe having someone who can listen. And if they don't know a lot about it, then I, I'm happy to fill them in. But it's it can be a really vulnerable thing to share. And um, I've definitely thought about it and been nervous about how that will play out. And I want to make sure that I'm doing what I can to keep myself healthy so that it's not harming anyone in, in my family or in my loved ones. It's a great answer. Tender question. I felt impressed to ask it. Thank you. Um, I think these tender conversations that couples have in the dating process can 
significantly sort of improve a relationship. It's the, I don't know when these more vulnerable, real discussions happen. They don't, maybe they happen on the first date, but there's this point in a relationship usually. <laughs> um, and I won't go down that road of when it may not happen, but the vulnerable, honest, real discussions that hopefully happen sort of pre-engagement. Um, and sometimes the reality of each other's story is enough to cause someone to feel that their job is their best path forward is a step away from relationship. But often it, it brings them together. Vulnerability brings vulnerability. It brings honest, real, authentic connection. Um, he may open up with somebody that, you know, that's something going on in his life that he's been playing out in his mind, how I've got to open up to my future wife about this Mm -hmm. and how she can respond to this. And my feeling is that it's a good thing to open up about these things. And I would hope in general, the principle is this may make you a better mother, a better wife, better lifelong partner and your ability then to heal and help others you're very self-aware about the things you want to do as a parent and (laughs) and no parent's perfect but each generation i think gets a little better our kids as we've watched our daughter who's our only um, child with married kids we see things she does that you know we look at as a step in a direction that's better because she understands things so i would hope that and this is kind of a general and I invite for everybody as people vulnerably open up is to do what you, you know, ask them to tell them more about their story yeah. and be interested and not just dismiss it, but, you know, be fully present, ask them about their story and don't make any decisions about the relationship right as you're hearing the story, <laughs> but spend some time processing that, what it means that that part that may be concerning to you, like an eating disorder actually be something that would be helpful because of all the skills that have come into Evie's life that would strengthen the relationship and make you a better parent and a better young woman's president or young woman's advisor (laughs) down the road. So I, I am, it's just some thoughts listeners as we are vulnerable and real and authentic. Um, and maybe your future husband will listen to this podcast one day. (laughs) And I hope he just says, I love her even more because I've learned some things about her that are just terrific. And um, I say that because I think not everybody can be on a podcast, but everybody's got a story. And you out there may have a story that you think is not worthy of a podcast, but your story is pretty awesome. And hearing another story and having a life partner to share your story with and to have that person love you and see you and understand you and value all of you and be a safe place for you to be completely authentic about how you feel and who you are, often is foundational points for just wonderful long-term relationship. Any more thoughts that came to your mind on that segment? Um, oh, so many. I'm just really <laughs> um, grateful for that perspective. I, I, I hope that by being open about things that um, have happened in my life, whether with those who are listening or in the future with um, loved ones and people that that will come into my life, that there will be that vulnerability, like you said, to, to strengthen and lift people. I think it gives us more perspective than kind of the surface level. Um, I guess the example I'll use is if you're going on a, a date or introducing someone to 
your family and the situation. I'm just going to use my own experience um, with an eating disorder, but that would be a, a more stressful situation to start off with like a meal because it's all about the food. Um, but having an opportunity to really engage in that genuine conversation um, and asking um, questions like, oh, is that a food allergy or is this an aversion that you have or not bringing it up in a, an insensitive way, but asking those questions when it's appropriate and um, trying to, to ask in, yeah, just in genuine ways. I, I don't know where I was going with that, but I just felt like there was, there's strength when we, when we ask in the right situations and maybe if you're worrying about someone, pull them off to the side and ask those questions in a, um, a more gentle or a more intimate um, setting so it's not publicized to whatever group you're with, but also, um, you know, you can't avoid like having social gatherings with food and stuff. I'm just saying that there's a lot of strength in being vulnerable um, in all the different kinds of settings. I think of one of the things we can do as parents or local leaders, I wish I'd done it better, this just create a family culture or if I were release society teacher, I guess I'm not going to ever be release society teacher or another scrum teacher. I think we can create a culture where people are safe opening up to us. If we say kind things about people that we usually don't say kind things about, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be an eating disorder, but just say kind things about people that are walk, working through difficult things and give them empathy and concern. It sort of creates a feeling if there's somebody in our circle that needs to open up to us, they kind of get a, a feel for who we are. If we're always saying unkind things about people in another political party or people that have left the church or people that are undocumented workers, I mean, the list goes on and on. And sometimes, you know, we can still yeah. hold our values and hold um, our own, own teachings and still say kind things about other members of the human family. That's kind of a tangent. It creates a feeling that we're safe if somebody yeah. in our circle wants to open about, about the realities of their life. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Evie? Um, I don't want to take too much time, but I had one other thought come Good. as you were saying that. Um, for parents talking to even your littlest children, I think, first of all, thank you for what you do. Um, but also reminding them again and again who they are is more than okay. I definitely encourage that. Um, and parents talking to to any children that are going to understand um, body culture as the world sees it today, just be careful about the kinds of things you say. Um, you know, if you're driving and you look out the window and you see someone who, who looks like really unhealthy, whether, you know, overweight or really severely thin, maybe the first comment shouldn't be, oh, she needs a cheeseburger. Let's go, you know, <laughs> let's stuff her full of this food or, that guy needs to go on a diet. You know, that's just not a healthy thing for children to hear. Um, and that's kind of a strange note to end on, but I just felt impressed to, to share that because there's your children are influ um, going to be influenced by the things that you say. And if the first feature we point out about someone is their body, um, then that what kind of example is that setting? Maybe instead, even if it, it's a competition, like, that's not the healthiest mindset to, to say instead. Um, I used to make this game for myself um, to help me not focus on people's bodies 
the first thing that I do when I even like passed someone in school or drove by someone would be to like think of a compliment I would give them the second I met them that it couldn't be related to their figure. Um, like I'd still let myself compliment their smile or their eyes or something, but um, like, wow, I'm, I'm so impressed with just the kindness that you, you radiate without saying anything or I'm grateful that you, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example. It's hard when you don't have the people like walking by you to think of the examples, but thanks for sharing that in, a, in class. That was really brave of you. Or if you don't know the person, then share the compliments with yourself in your head and it helps you get in that mindset of this person is a child of God and I'm not seeing their body first. I'm seeing them as a person. Like I, I see the light in their eyes that, that came from God and that's, that's tremendous. Um, kind of a long tangent there, but I know that. Not um, seeing their body first. Um, society certainly conditions us to see that way. You brought to mind of a talk I've loved over the years, Michael Wilcox, one of my favorite institute teacher, and he talks about seeing as God sees. Mm -hmm. And he just goes through lots of examples of seeing how God sees. And I don't think God sees by body type. I I think think so either. If God could come on the podcast, maybe that's disrespectful and talk about each of us on the in the human family um, and describe us, he wouldn't get to body type ever. No. And um, we do that as Latter-day Saints, just like that kind of innocuous example of what I'm sure I've done. When I mm-hmm. see someone real skinny or real overweight, we say things, but I think we need to learn to not say those kind of things because it does create a conditioning Right. In the people in our circle of influence, especially younger people that are learning to measure their worth by how people that are um, key in their lives talk about worth. Right. And so I love then your example of developing worth around things in your control and giving very specific compliments to people that aren't based on body. Right. <laughs> so I love that. People are able to feel that when they know that you're looking at, at them as a person, they can feel it. And children can feel it. And so I think that's an improvement in our culture that we can do because we sort of do culturally in our church at times and in society create a lot of seeing around body type. And I think it's probably more for women, but there's probably some men out there that are listening and thinking this podcast is really helpful for me. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so the principles apply to men and women. Um, and there's probably some of the same challenges with men. And I don't think this comes naturally. I think it comes as, I don't think we're born this way um, to have an eating disorder. I think it comes because of the programming around us. Um, How many factors? And perhaps maybe it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm no scientist in this stuff. So if you disagree with that, that's fine. I should, probably shouldn't even speculate. But I realize that a lot of what came into your life was just innocent things that occurred in your life to cause this way of, to cause this. And I think it's compounds. Yeah. Compounds. So I think it's really, you know, this podcast helps a lot of people, you know, I look, read this. Um, and maybe you've heard this Evie, but it's for anybody who doesn't listen regularly. A minister service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded about the suffering, which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of a desert by someone who's never been there. And that's from the wounded healer, Henry Noren, Jake Watts, friend gave me that years ago and when i hear a story like yours you're the wounded healer and 
It's a great gift to give somebody to be the wounded healer. We're all wounded listeners. And we all then have the potential to heal people and take the difficult things that come to our life and know the deserts of those difficult things, even days we're not sure we'd live, and then be able to then help other people out of that same desert or other deserts. And I love where you're wanting to do that with your career now and your personal experience and the things you've learned. It's not theoretical for you. So I love, we're all wounded healers and we all can take our lived experiences and um, look at them in a positive way that that difficult experience is actually now helps me help other people, which is part of our baptism covenants. Also really like the idea of listeners that I swear I wish our culture could improve is that our worth is set because we're children of heavenly parents. And I do worry culturally, there's so many sort of stepping stones as a youth in the Latter-day Saint, which I like, you know, mm-hmm. becoming an Eagle Scout, these milestones that it creates a feeling of that that's where our worth is created and hitting these milestones and all the support. But I think we should look at those as still really good things, but our worth is still set. <laughs> and it's not earned by other people. It's not earned by these milestones. It's not earned by whatever, because I think that just puts us in a better emotional spot. And the doctrine of that is just we're spirit children of heavenly parents. We're created in their image. Um, and so we exist intentionally, and that just should create in itself incredible worth and value in us that is just there. It's not or not. It doesn't take commandment keeping and progress off the table, but I think just puts us in a place where we're not always running after. Or, you know, some people will talk on social media, and I'm getting kind of a tangent about I'm always chasing worthiness or I'm always kind of feeling like I've got to do one more thing to sort of be complete as a Latter-day Saint. And you sort of get in this, and it may start as a youth because we have these milestones and continue into adulthood because we kind of program ourselves. But I think we have to do what you've learned to do is just my worth is set. And, um, and then I think it gives us more peace. So Evie Jimenez, um, thank you for reaching out. Um, you give me hope for the future of the world when I meet people like you. Such a tender, wonderful testimony, insights in the atonement, insights into your own story. I love um, the positive role your parents and your kind comments towards them as they navigate this road. I think this is a beautiful family love story. I don't know if your parents will listen, but I love, here I go off again on a tangent. I think of Apollo 13, you know, for the commander in the middle of a really difficult time. Everybody's sort of saying, this is terrible. And he says, excuse me. I think this is going to be our finest moment. And so, you know, I think this is for the Jimenez family. I think this has been one of your finest moments. It's been hell at times. There's been yelling in the car, as you've talked about, like a lot of families. <laughs> and it felt like their worst moment that no one, but I think it's been your finest moment. And, I, and so credit to you and credit to other families that are working through really difficult things, maybe sometimes completely private from, their LDS congregations because they need to be private in these sort of things. And um, I hope this podcast gives you hope that you're in the middle of your finest moment as you work through this, even though there's, it's difficult. So anyway, Richard Osler and Evie Jimenez, Jimenez, I've said your right name right, I think, signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.